you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We will be on page 493 in the Blue Bible, which is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take one of those as a gift from Northridge. Once again, we are in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thus says God's word. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the truths it contains. We thank you for the inspiration with which it is imbued by the Holy Spirit. We we thank you that your words are life. And so, God, we look to you um, to instruct us from your word. We ask for hearing ears, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, to hear what your wisdom is and to reject the so-called wisdom of this world and its culture. And we ask that we would, Lord, have a greater appreciation at the end of our time together for the gift and the illustration that you've given us through natural human marriage. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to hear, help our hearts to respond. Lord, I ask for a tremendous blessing on myself to be able to speak clearly and to preach uh, exactly with the intent of your words, Lord. And so I thank you for that. And, um, God, we just commit this message this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. It is great to have you here this morning as we... uh, move into this time of preaching. At Northridge Life, you may have noticed this. Um, We're committed to something that this, you may never have heard this term before, thought about this term, but we're committed to something called expositional preaching. And in most cases, that means that we take a text and we preach it verse by verse and and the reason that we do that is because we don't want you to get little pieces of scripture as though we had just finished our chinese dinner and you cracked open your fortune cookie and that's a terrible way to approach the word of god what we want you to be able to do is to hear understand and embrace to the best of our ability the full content of the passage and and so that's why we've been doing this in mark since february um But it also means some other things. Expositional preaching means that we make every effort to 
interpret the Bible not according to our theological preferences, not according to our theological prejudices, not according to our theological opinions. What we want to do, what we strive to do is to communicate the meaning that God intended as he gave these words to the original writers. Now, there's a reason we do this. We do it because we are convinced that I wish all of y'all would amen me like that little boy back there. So <laughs> tell you what, you, you show them mavericks. Um, we do this. The reason we are committed to this is because we are convinced that the Bible always, may I say that again? We're convinced the Bible always supersedes traditions. It always supersedes opinions. It always supersedes our politics. The Bible is infallible, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, and it is clearly revealed. So we don't conform the message to trends that change year after year, month after month, week after week, and sometimes day after day. The Bible tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So there's a benefit for the congregation and a church that preaches its messages verse by verse. But that benefit for you can also be a significant hardship for the ones that are preaching the message. The benefit to you is that verses that are tricky to interpret, that may be hard to receive, they can't be simply glossed over in order to give you a steady diet of how blessed you are because you're God's little princes and princesses. Instead, we, we must, whenever the text demands it, declare our need, our collective need, for the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Deep questions have to be answered thoughtfully. Calls for self-examination, calls for repentance cannot be simply ignored. And the difficulty is that the heavy lifting that is necessary to navigate those tricky passages falls to the one doing the preaching. And so there's this tension where we have to preach with both wisdom and sensitivity, but also with a resolute commitment to the purity and the perfection of Holy Scripture. And sometimes that's not as easy as it may sound, take today's text, for example. Today's text that Keegan just read for you focuses, focuses on the unpleasant reality that marriages in our fallen world are often terminated through divorce. The passage seeks to discover what God says about that and how we're to apply what he has said to our own marriages. Now, as I prepared to preach this text to you, I was confronted by the uncomfortable truth that many of you to whom I'm speaking have experienced the trauma of a failed marriage. And I want you to know before we get into this, some of you have probably been in messages on this text before and you already can kind of feel yourself tensing up. But I want to make a promise to you that I have no desire, I have no intention to pile on to the heap of residual pain 
the residual heartache that exists in the aftermath of your marriages. See, I'm convinced that no two marriages are exactly alike. And when they fail, there's often they often fail in all kinds of different circumstances, in all kinds of nuances, and the vast range of which would be impossible for me to address on one single Sunday morning. But while that's true, and I want to be incredibly sensitive, I'm also compelled to uphold the truth that the Bible clearly lays down. See, because it's only in the path that Jesus illuminates for us that abundant life can truly be experienced. Abundant life can never be found in either excusing or over-contextualizing our past, whether we have been sinned against or whether we are the ones who have sinned. And therefore, I can neither relax God's standards nor do I want to place such a weight on people with a past that I personally have not experienced, that the only possible responses to this message would be for those of you who have never experienced divorce to be judgmental, and those of you who have to only experience hopeless despair and increased condemnation. And so even though we've already prayed for this message, my prayer is that God's Mercy to all of us in all of our various sins would be revealed. Now, can you get behind that prayer? So Mark 10 finds Jesus and the disciples moving south towards their ultimate destination of Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus has already predicted twice now that once they get to Jerusalem, he will be arrested, he will suffer, he will be crucified, and then subsequently Three days later, he will rise again. But they pause on the east side of the Jordan River, and Jesus once again sees a crowd gathering around him, and he takes the opportunity to teach the crowd about the kingdom of God that has come, just as we've seen since chapter 1. And so in verse 2, this is what we read. And the Pharisees came up in the middle of his teaching, and in order to test him, asked this question, Is it lawful... For a man to divorce his wife. Now, during Jesus' ministry up north in Galilee, twice the Pharisees in Mark have traveled all the way north on foot, hundred miles or so, hundreds of miles, to harass him, to tempt him, to test him with questions. But now Jesus is on their turf in the south. And they're not going to let up. They're not going to tap the brakes. They're going in hard. See, because I say that because the goal of their questioning is not enlightenment. They don't want Jesus to give them wisdom. Uh, They don't want him to elaborate on something. They want to trap him. They're trying to trip him up. In fact, if some of you have the older translations of the Bible, the word test is probably translated as tempted in your scriptures. In, in, In the Old Testament... You know, you remember that that Jesus uh, quoted Deuteronomy to the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness. And he said, you shall not tempt or put to the test the Lord your God. In the Old Testament, men are said to tempt God by asserting their distrust of him. They want to test him to see whether their own distrust of him can be validated. And the test that the Pharisees bring to Jesus in this moment with this question is indicative of two things. Both their lack, 
their personal lack of faith in Jesus, and their desire to see him lose all credibility and possibly be destroyed over anger, over a wrong or unpopular answer to their question about divorce. But you notice that Jesus, as is typical for Jesus, he doesn't stammer. He doesn't struggle to formulate an answer. He doesn't stop to check the polls and see which way the winds of opinion are blowing. He doesn't give a second thought to the tradition of the elders. Instead, he redirects their attention to the scriptures. And what a lesson is is packed in that moment for us. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, What did Moses command you? In other words, guys, open your Bibles, turn to the law, and tell me what it says. See, their question, this question about divorce, shows that divorce isn't just a hot-button topic in our age, but that it has been for at least two millennia. Bible commentators believe that there's two main reasons that the Pharisees questioned Jesus about his position on the issue of divorce. First, if you'll recall, John the Baptist had confronted King Herod about his casual marital ethic. Remember that? See, Herod had divorced his own wife, and he took his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and ultimately... When John the Baptist corrected Herod about this this uh, crime, this sin, he lost his head. And the Pharisees thought that maybe if we paint Jesus into a corner and ask him a question about divorce, it's on everybody's mind in the culture right now, he might say the wrong thing and wind up experiencing the same fate as John the Baptist. But secondly... At this time, in first century Israel, there were two main schools of rabbinical thought on the question of divorce. They, uh, and so what the Pharisees were doing, they may have wanted to pin Jesus to either the conservative side of the argument or the liberal side of the argument in order to diminish his popular with whoever was on the opposite side. And so what were those two views? Well, the rabbi Shammai taught that only sexual infidelity could justify divorce. While an opposing uh, rabbi named Hillel asserted that a man could divorce his wife on the basis of any, with a capital A, any displeasure or embarrassment that she brought upon him. Hillel taught he that, that a man can divorce his wife, quote, even if she spoiled a dish for him. So ladies, if you... Burn the eggs, you got to hit the bricks. Rabbi Akiba, who was of the Hillel school, said that that a man may divorce his wife even if he found another fairer than her. So, ladies, if you're aging, I'm sorry, he's going to trade up to to the next year's model. And that was okay by the Hillel school. And something tells me that the Hillel school would have been warmly accepted in 21st century America. Amen? We know that this broad view of divorce from the Hillel school 
was at the heart of the Pharisees' question because of the way it's posed in the Gospel of Matthew. In his parallel account, this is the way he poses the question of the Pharisees. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're asking them about the popular opinion of that rabbinical school. And their answer to the question... When Jesus asks them, what did Moses command you? That a certificate of divorce must be given. And, and then when it, once it is, you can dismiss your wife. This is in line with that second view. They understood Moses to say that dissolving a marriage was as simple as handing a woman a legal decree and sending her away. And they justified themselves based on the writings of Moses. So everybody reopen your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. And this is where the Pharisees got their answer to Christ from. Verse 1. Listen to the words carefully. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you by inheritance." And then Jesus, when he's responding to their proof text and the way that they're using, or I rather I should say misusing that proof text, Jesus tells them that this accommodation by Moses was made not to give them expansive liberty in putting away their wives. In other words, he wasn't just saying, hey, if she burns the eggs, get rid of her. But he, he said it was given because of the hardness of their hearts. What does he mean by that? He is not saying that because that men's and women's hearts are so hard that it's unreasonable to expect them to stay married. No. What he's saying and what he meant is that because we live in a fallen world, that even the purest and most holy institutions that God has established, like marriage, would be polluted by human sin. That's what he's saying. So Jesus, what he does after he gets their answer of what Moses has commanded them, he does the most interesting thing. He points them to two places in another place where Moses has written. And he does so to show God's wisdom on this issue. Verse 6 says, But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus addresses the whole issue of marriage and divorce, not by pointing to one of the schools of the rabbis, but he goes back and he points 
with his holy finger to God's original intent. And there are some things that we need to take time to notice in the passages that he selects. From Genesis 1.27, Jesus maintains that from the beginning, God created two sexes, male and female. And what that means is that in the marriage relationship, both genders, male and female, have inherent dignity. But it also means, if we can make a modern cultural application, that any imaginary enlargement of the number of genders by the LGBTQIA, XYZ community is not the result, listen to me carefully, that is not the result of human progress. But it's clear proof of human pride and human sin. God's boundaries as the creator for human sexuality and human sex or gender, male and female, his boundaries are perfect. And they need no expansion. They need no revision. They need no modification. He also makes clear that those two opposite sexes were designed for monogamous sexual reu- sexual union that would be reserved. They almost said sexual reunion, which is fine too if you're married. You should have many sexual reunions if you're married. So the, the two opposite sexes were designed for monogamous sexual union that would be reserved only for marriage. The design of our anatomy, and the sensitivity of our hearts makes this absolutely abundantly clear. Loving sexuality is the foundation of biblical marriage. It's, it's, the, it's the, the, the glue, which we'll talk about in a minute, the glue that holds marriage together. And therefore, as I, I'm not trying to harp on this issue, but because of this, because anatomy and the design of our hearts prove that we were made for each other, male and female, there is no such thing as gay marriage. Gay marriage is only as real as two children playing house would be. Marriage is made valid not only by the natural compatibility of our bodies, but also the roles that God has assigned to men and women. If you have two men or two women or any other combination in this crazy world, you do not have a true marriage because God has made those two sexes compatible and he did it for his design and his purpose. And these roles, these roles assigned to men, assigned to women, make concepts such as open marriage and cohabitation and unchecked promiscuity exceedingly wicked and a recipe for disaster. And they always result at some level in fear, jealousy, unquenchable lust, insecurity, and heartache for those who practice them. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. In Jesus' words, he's showing us the better way that is found in God's design. He's saying it doesn't have to be like that. It can be so much better. When the Bible says in Genesis 2.24 that Christ quotes here, that a man should hold fast to his wife, that Greek word is proskalao. And proskalao means that the, to glue one thing to another. Jesus 
is framing marriage as a lifelong and inseparable union. He's not just saying that by leaving father and mother, marriage constitutes a new family, which it certainly does, but he's saying that it constitutes one brand new person out of two that existed previously. Biblical, God-honoring marriage changes your identity. Identity is everything these days. Everyone's talking about their identity. Let me tell you what biblical marriage does to your identity. It changes you from I and me to we and us. That's what it does. Because of this, the book of Ephesians, and if you're married this morning, if you're doing great or if you're struggling, listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you from the Bible. The book of Ephesians says that every single marriage is an illustration of the union that Christ has with His church. The union wherein Christ laid down His life joyfully. And the union wherein the church joyfully submits to Him. And so my question to you married folks this morning, is your marriage the kind of sermon that anybody in their right mind would want to listen to? So based on the original intent and the inherent sacredness of the union of one man and one woman, Jesus makes his final response to the Pharisees' question. And I have use this response in my closing words of every single marriage I've ever performed as a pastor. Verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus grants no credence to human choice. He does not say what... Two people have joined by mutual agreement. No. He looks rather past human choice, straight into the eyes of the sovereignty of God. And he says, what God has joined together. What God has joined together. Think about this week, this last week with your spouse. Think about the times that maybe, just maybe, I'm just assuming it might have happened once or twice. There might have been a short temper, a frustration. Why is he always like that? Just pick up your underwear. Why is she like that? Why can she not ever find her keys? Think about it. And then remember, I'm sorry, honey, that was really... Out of the ballpark. I did, in all fairness, talk about my underwear. So I think, I think, I think the scales are still balanced in your favor. But, but think about that and think about the message of this passage. The Bible didn't say that however many months or years or decades ago that you got married, that you stumbled into a mistake. Uh uh-uh. uh. He says what God has joined together. Hmm. That ought to make us grateful. It ought to make us confident. And it ought to humble the daylights out of us to submit our own lives to God's plan, His purpose, His design, His, His agenda for our marriage. And can I please get an amen?
Human beings, Jesus is saying, have no God-given liberty, no delegated authority to rip apart what sovereign God has sealed together. This phrase in this passage in the Greek, joined together, it speaks of oxen who are fastened at the neck by a yoke. You know what a yoke does when two oxen are yoked together? It makes them travel in the same direction. One one oxen can't go this way, another oxen can't go this way at the same time. Nope, they're going the same direction. And more than that, you strap a plow to the back of them, they have to accomplish the same purpose. What a great picture of an ideal marriage. Traveling in the same direction, uh, 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 performing the same function, accomplishing the same goal. Now, so we get done with the Pharisees, we wipe our hands of them, But this is such a radical departure from the direction of the culture that it was moving in during the first century, as it is in our culture, that the disciples were absolutely stunned by the by where Jesus had placed the bar on this subject. He had raised it so high. And so once back in the house, they questioned him about it. But Jesus does not budge at all from the permanence and the sacredness of marriage. In fact, he he doubles down on it and reaffirms it. This is what he says to the disciples. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so Jesus' words are by no way uh, unclear. Despite the rabbi's traditions, the rulings of the courts, the trends of the present day, Jesus says that the bond of marriage is so permanent that to cast it aside for a new spouse, a new lover, is to play the role of an adulterer. Now pause. Hit the pause button. I want to go back to what I was saying at the beginning. Because fortunately, as your pastor, I know some of your stories and I know the pain that are associated with them. And so I want to just encourage you, for those of you that have been divorced, these words from Jesus can seem incredibly harsh. But for many of you, before I get onto the bulk of what I want to say, for many of you, the conviction that you feel when you hear those words is actually quite appropriate. What is happening is the Holy Spirit is speaking to your conscience And he's drawing you, instead of trying to shove down what you feel about whatever mistakes you've made, whatever sins you've committed, he's drawing you to know the joy and freedom that only comes with repentance. And so you've got to look at your past with open eyes, and you have to ask yourself this question, will I repent and receive the full forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Or will I justify my own sin by continued excuses? So just deal with that what you will, but let me talk to the other side of this story. There are others of you under my preaching, and really, I've got to be honest with you, this breaks my heart, but others of you are hurt by the words I've just said. But I I do want to point out that the reason you're hurt is because you don't have the full counsel of God's 
word on this topic. See, Mark's purpose in the way that he presented Jesus' response to the Pharisees is to proclaim undoubtedly Jesus' sanction and blessing on permanent marriage and his sovereignty over it. But Jesus also had told the Pharisees, remember that this idea of divorce, this idea of giving your spouse a certificate of divorce was given because of the hardness of human hearts. So what else does the scripture say on this topic? Well, we only have to look at the parallel passage in Matthew. Same discussion, Matthew just words it a little differently. Matthew 19.9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except of clause, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. See, Jesus takes the more conservative position from the prevailing rabbis of his day, and yet he doesn't. it doesn't originate with them. It originates from God's intent, and he speaks on his own authority, not on theirs. The exception to the idea that marriage and divorce, or, or I'm sorry, divorce and remarriage makes you an adulterer is whether or not there has been sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage. And while this certainly includes adultery, without a doubt, that's clear, it's not limited to it. It's interesting that here in Matthew, the the, uh, term sexual immorality is the Greek porneia. What does that sound like to you? It's where we get the word for pornography. And so what Jesus is saying, that deviation from God's design for matrimonial sexual integrity places marriages at great jeopardy. This doesn't mean that the spouse is obligated to divorce, but it does recognize a liberty to do so. Sex in the confines of marriage. This is why that is, because sex in the confines of marriage is a sacred trust. It is literally the glue, as I said earlier, that holds the marriage together. And if one partner is gluing themselves to others with whom they have no sacred commitment, they disgrace their spouse. And Jesus, in Matthew, mercifully releases them from being prisoners of a broken trust. And thank God for it. Furthermore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that in the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, the believing spouse may let them go. And I want to say also on this time, at this time that abandonment can be defined in more ways than I have time to do right now. If you have questions, come and see me and I'll do the best I can to help you out. But the point is that Jesus' prohibition on divorce, listen carefully, listen carefully, Jesus' prohibition on divorce cannot be righteously used to entrap a spouse in a marriage that is physically, sexually, psychologically, or religiously abusive. Because God knows the hardness of the human heart. He has accommodated innocent victims of wicked spouses. But, and let me say this with great graveness and solemnity, these are hard calls to make. And no believer... No believer, you are not the exception. No believer should ever determine to end a marriage alone. 
without the loving counsel of church leaders and church family who both know and respect their Bibles and who want the best for both spouses. And all that being said, all of it, everything I've said this morning, with all of that being said, I want you to know that it's my great joy to report to you that I have seen marriages where grace has healed the greatest trespasses of, of one or even both of the spouses. It's a beautiful thing to see. And we should ask God to make us able to approach each other with the forgiveness that we ourselves have received from Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you right now, no matter how good your marriage seems right now, without that kind of grace, any marriage is impossible. And all the married people said. So this message is today. The message today that I want to leave you with is that God ordains and he sanctions marriage. And he's made it to be a permanent blessing until and only until we're parted by death. And so those who casually discard marriages due to their own restlessness and sinfulness are regarded by God as adulterers. And the Bible tells us in a couple of places that no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And yet, and yet, and yet, thank God, there is forgiveness for the most heinous sins we have committed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, God has mercifully made provision in his law, in his law for those who are mistreated by those to whom they've given their lives, their love, their bodies. And so may our marriages always reflect our union with Christ for all the world to see, who is called his church, to be his very own spotless bride, and he will never, ever send her away. And aren't you glad? Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithful love to us. We thank you that, Lord, when we were, had more characteristics of a whore than then a virgin, Lord, you, you took us and made us your own and, and you have cleansed us with the washing of the water of word and you've made us your own spotless bride. And Lord, in the light of such mercy received, we pray that you would help us to be merciful spouses, Lord. And not just to be merciful in the failings and faults of each other, but Lord, help us to be the kinds of spouses that lay our lives down for our wives, for our husbands, to sacrifice, for the men to sacrifice, for the women to submit, and Lord, to bring honor and glory to your name so that all the world will see what a glory your relationship to your church is. Lord, I pray for those who have a laundry list of mistakes and sins and broken relationships. God, I pray that they would not 
feel the compulsion to make excuses, but Lord, they would run to your mercy, even if it's a return trip to your mercy. And I pray that they would find it, that they would find peace, and that you would restore them, God, not just in their in their in, in their hearts, but Lord, that you would restore their conscious their their conscience, Lord, to uh, peace with you. Lord, I pray for those who are here, and even if no one else knows, Lord, that their marriage is in jeopardy, Lord. Selfishness and maybe even sexual sin has made a inroad into their marriage. And Lord, I pray that you would just pour down mercy, Lord God. Let mercy reign. Let sin be washed away. Let forgiveness happen. Let restoration, even if it's hard work, let restoration happen, Lord Jesus. God, I also pray for those who have experienced the trauma of divorce, those who were betrayed and abandoned, cheated on, Lord. God, I pray that they would comfort themselves in the fact that you are their husband, Lord, and that you will never forsake them. You will never betray them. You will never turn them out. And God, let us all rejoice in that reality and thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to ask our uh, helpers for communion to come forward and um, we will uh, we'll receive the elements. Uh, we just real quickly, uh, before I forget, um, hope has uh, kind of headed up a team to provide um, fresh bread for communion to be a little bit more reflective of what we think the Bible teaches. And um, we have a we have a, a single loaf here. I, I think it's already broken, but when you come, you can just pull a piece off of that instead of the pre-cut pieces that we used to have. And so uh, you'll be able to do that. I do want to say that um, uh, this, when I'm thinking about marriage and communion, I think about Peter's words that we were not bought with corruptible things like silver and gold. Most of us spend all of our lives trying to get a hold of some silver and gold, and Paul and Peter calls them corruptible things. But he says that we were purchased, we were married, we were betrothed to Christ by the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so as you come today and you consider, as we talked about Wednesday, your union with Christ, come and just realize that you have been purchased not just to be you know, get an escape route out of hell, but you have been purchased to be the spotless, eternal bride of Christ as you come today. For those of you who have not placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with evidence of repentance, can we just invite you to just remain where you are and then make a beeline to me after the service and let's talk about how you can know that you belong to Jesus. But if you came before that you have made that clear, this would mean nothing to you. And in fact, as we point out all the time in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us that you could actually be eating and drinking condemnation to yourself, which we would not want to encourage. But for the rest of you, if you would come and receive the elements and take them back to your seat, then we will take them together in just a moment. Thank you.
Paul writes for us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cleansing of your blood and the healing of your broken body. That, Lord, you have, you have restored us to the image of God and made us uh, to be able to stand before you, not with our list of trespasses against us, but with the righteousness of Christ himself. And so in this, Lord, we give thanks and we, we love you for what you've done in us. And in Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position and let me pronounce this benediction over you. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the husband see that she respects her husband In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.